So the first thing we're going to do is actually Lisa's going to be preaching this morning. Ah, I was warned that that should not be happening. Okay. So this morning we are continuing with our series in uh, Ephesians. Well, actually, we're studying the church in Ephesus. So we're not just in Ephesians. Today we're in Ephesians. But we spent a month in Acts. We're going to be doing the entire book of Ephesians. Then we're actually going to go back and do one more week in Acts before starting First and Second Timothy, because Timothy was the pastor of the church in Ephesus. I have personally really enjoyed learning just how integrated the church in Ephesus is to the New Testament. We will finish this whole thing off with one or two weeks in the book of Revelation, because there's a little letter to the church in Ephesus at the end of Revelation, okay? So... We're going to get to that. But first, um, I want to share something just as an an illustration. My grandfather, uh, when he was getting older and before he died, he kept a a few books by his nightstand uh, at all times. When he died, I got his Bible. Just, I mean, old Bibles are kind of cool, I think. I don't know, because I just imagine who's read them or what they've read or why why do they underline this part, you know? he kept a Bible next to his bed, and he kept something called the Book of Common Prayer. Anyone ever heard of the Book of Common Prayer? Okay, because my grandfather was Episcopalian, they used this Book of Common Prayer. It's basically a little booklet that has uh, you know, a prayer for communion, maybe prayers that you would pray at a funeral. It has prayers for the morning, prayers for the evening, prayers for your meal, prayers to sanctify chicken wings. Um, and you know, it's, it's just a book of prayers. And I think that the purpose of it is not to replace a personal prayer life, but to propel a personal prayer life or to initiate it. So you start with these things, but then you also build on them and you have your own prayers that are not written and borrowed from someone else. Now, my grandfather, obviously, if he kept it by his bed, appreciated and enjoyed the book of common prayer. Uh, The New Testament actually provides something like that for us because it records many prayers that are prayed. So I've mentioned this in the past, but we have the prayer of Jesus, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, the Lord's Prayer. I mean, that's, that's a pattern for how we should pray. And we've taught on this many, many times when we've had the College of Prayer here and in other, other uh, gatherings, we've taught on the Lord's Prayer. But also in John 17, there's something called the high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed. It's a couple chapters long, actually. It's a great prayer. He prays about his followers being one and united the way that he and the Father are one. He actually goes on to pray for the disciples, and then he says, not just for the disciples, but for those who will follow the disciples, that's us. So if you want to know what Jesus prays for us, start in John 17, and you'll discover a few things. After the prayers of Jesus, there are also what I call apostolic prayers in the New Testament. There are prayers that Paul prays, for instance, for the church. There's a prayer in Colossians, and there are two in Ephesians. And in November, we looked at what I called apostolic prayer number one, which was in Ephesians chapter one. Today, we're going to look at apostolic prayer number two, which is in Ephesians chapter three. Uh, These are prayers that Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus, but I believe first tell us a little bit about Paul's heart, but also give us a model. If you wanted to make your own book of uncommon prayer, these would be prayers that you would include in that. In fact, I want you to know that I have on my 
phone or tablet or computer a list of apostolic prayers in the New Testament. That's what I use to guide me when I'm praying for our church. So, for instance, what I'm going to put on the screen in a moment is a prayer that I, I will read it and something will jump out at me and I'll pray that for a few people in the church that day and then I'll text them and scare them with it. Right, Ruby? I did this two weeks or so with you? Okay. She wanted to know what I pray for her and I sent her the pass and she's like, oh, I think that's how she responded. All right, I'm not asking. Um, so this prayer is the, uh, what we're calling apostolic prayer number two from Ephesians. There, there are many in the New Testament, but uh, this is the one we're going to look at today. This is from Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 18. Paul, is, says, Paul says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Okay. So this is a great, I, I don't, it's a great prayer. Obviously it's in the Bible, so it's better than all of your prayers. Okay. And mine. It's a great model. It's really not that long. Frankly, I read it in about 20 seconds. Um, I wish I could get some of us praying under 20 seconds, but it's a good, it's a good foundational prayer. It's an apostolic prayer because Paul was an apostle. Uh, when I think of apostles of the new Testament, I think of fathers, spiritual fathers or spiritual mothers. Um, that's a good way for us to think about the role of apostolic figures in the Bible, spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers. Paul's heart toward them. We find in Acts chapter 20, I believe, it actually tells the story of Paul leaving Ephesus. And it's, it's called, in my Bible, the, the heading says, Paul says farewell to Ephesus. And he says, you know that when I met with you, I cried. I shed tears when I had to leave. And he actually warns them, when I leave, fierce wolves are going to come in, and some of them are even going to come out from among you. So he gives this warning. We'll get to that passage in a few months. But So his heart was really sensitive toward Ephesus. So this prayer is a little bit of a picture of Paul's heart. But what I really want to focus on is the structure of the prayer, because it has a Trinitarian structure. What I mean by Trinitarian, that's a big like word you would use on Jeopardy, probably. Trinitarian prayer means it, re it relates to the Trinity. He starts off with saying the Father, he's referring to the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Then he prays that they, they would be strengthened with power through his Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. And, not, not Paul's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, and then he prays so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He's addressed every member of the Trinity here in this prayer. And so there's a couple ways we could look at this prayer. Today we're going to look at it uh, through these Trinitarian uh, lenses. And we're going to look at how he prays that every family derives their name from the Father, that they would be strengthened by the Holy Spirit, and that they are indwelt and loved by Jesus. Okay, so that's kind of the three uh, points we're going to hit this morning. 
So first, he says in verse 15, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So when he says family in this context, he's referring to ethnic family. Remember, we've been talking about this for weeks. He is telling them that God has, Jesus, uh, God through Jesus has torn down the dividing wall of hostility between Jewish people and non-Jewish people. So this whole book has an underlying theme of racial reconciliation and equality among races. So when he says family in this passage, he's not necessarily talking about your household. He's talking about uh, ethnic racial families, groups of people. And he's saying that every single one of them derives their name from God. That is to say that every race, every ethnicity, every people group, every nation is made in God's image. There is not one group that is more made in God's image and another group that is less made in God's image, but every race is made in God's image, which means that probably every race reveals something or teaches us something distinct about God the Father. Does that make sense? They, they all, we all derive our name from the Father. Now, just to illustrate this, um, it's not that hard, I think, to make the connection to the natural. My kids are Aiden Rudd, Emma Rudd, and Josiah Rudd. What a coincidence, right? Three Rudds. That's actually not a coincidence. All three of them derived their name from their father, right? They all were given a name. So, there's this fascinating concept about names in the Bible that the responsibility of giving a name indicates authority. Adam was given the responsibility of naming all the animals in Genesis. Do you remember this? Chico was there. He could tell us about it. He was the guy that wrote it down. Uh, Adam was given the responsibility to name all the animals, which is a picture of Adam's authority or dominion over creation. Not only his dominion, but his responsibility for creation to steward it. Uh, parents give their children names, right? Because parents have not only responsibility for, but authority over their children. And so my wife and I named our kids, and all of my kids derive their name from their father. Now I realize that nowadays that is not always the case. I get that. But in this passage, that what that is the case, and that's what that is referring to, that identity is given from the Father. God is our Father, and we are made in His image. Acts 17.26 says something really similar to this. I refer to this passage frequently. Acts 17.26 says this, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times in the boundaries of their habitation. So God picks the place and the time that you're born on purpose. For what purpose? That they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. God picks the place and the time that you are born, and he designs it in such a way that is the, it is the most effective way for you to come to him, so that they would seek him, is the reason that he picks the time and the place that you're born. So there's a reason you weren't born in the 1500s, there's a reason you weren't born 500 years from now. Whatever time for you would lead you to seek him, that's when he had you born, as well as the place. All right, so God is our Father. We're made in his image. 
through sin, that image is marred or assaulted. Um, but in Jesus, the image of God is restored in us. Name here is more than just a title. Name refers to identity. We receive our identity from the Father. Uh, this is important because we are prone to find our identity in anything but our sonship or our daughtership in God. There are so many false identities that we pursue. If you want to know how people identify themselves, just see if you can get them to introduce themselves. And they might tell you their name, but then they'll tell you what they do. I do this for a living. Or I'm an Eagles fan, or I'm this, or I'm that. However they describe themselves are how they see their identity. Now, some people will describe themselves strictly as, this is what I do for a living, this is my job, this is how much money I make, that's their identity. Other people identify themselves by, well, I have a spouse and a couple kids, or they'll, I, I live so-and-so. For instance, I know that Susan identifies herself as a South Philly. I just know that because she, it comes out in every 60 seconds. <laughs> And so I just know that that's part of her idolatry, I guess. Is, um, but you know, the way that people identify themselves shows you how they see their identity. Now, you know, I know most of us probably don't go up and say, hi, hi, I'm Jim, son of the Most High God, you know, like, or beloved of the Father. It's not on my business card. It's not how I answer the phone either, although maybe I'll start. But our identity comes from God the Father. We are all in Christ, not outside of Christ, but in Christ, primarily sons of God and daughters of God. We are the beloved of God. Now, this is only true in Jesus. Outside of Jesus, meaning before we come to faith in Christ, we are actually enemies of God. We are rebels. We are an affront to God. But in Jesus... When we put our faith in Christ, we become sons of God and daughters of God, and that becomes our primary identity. Not our occupation, not our sexual preferences, not our race, not our politics. Those are all false identities that people are loving on right now. And they're, they're actually, in some ways, elevating those things above their identity even in Jesus. I'm this person political party before I'm a Christian. Or I'm this sexual preference before I'm a Christian. And I bring my Christianity underneath my sexuality. That's wrong. Or I bring my uh, Christianity underneath my politics. That's wrong. You understand? We want to bring everything underneath our identity in Jesus. So whatever's out of alignment with our identity in Christ, we repent and bring it into alignment with Jesus. Uh, getting our identity from the Father means that we are sons and daughters and that what he says about us is the primary way that we identify ourselves. So to derive our name from the Father is to derive our identity from the Father. So Father, whatever you say, that's what we're doing. That's what goes. You say I'm beloved, I'm going to stop beating myself up all the time. You say I'm a son, I'm going to be a son. I'm going to stop acting like an orphan. A spiritual orphan. Uh, so I want to do this little practice then. A um, couple key figures or key pictures that we get for our identity in Christ is sons and daughters, also the beloved, 
also child of God. So I'm going to ask you to repeat a few things after me, and we're going to make sure that we make it clear that these are true in Christ. I'm going to say, in Christ, I identify as, because that's such a popular phrase right now, right? In Christ, I identify as a son or daughter of God. Then we'll say, in Christ, I identify as the beloved of God. And then we'll say, in Christ, I identify as a child of God. Got it? So you're going to repeat after me if you can honestly, genuinely do that, okay? Men, sons, women, daughters. Guess I got to say that. Repeat after me. In Christ, I identify as a son of God. In Christ, I identify as the beloved of God. In Christ, I identify as a child of God. Okay, so without sounding too weird, those are uh, uh, statements, you can, declarations you can remind yourself of from time to time. That that's your actual identity, not your job, not your political affiliation, not your sexuality. But these things are true in Jesus about your identity. So first. Uh, Paul prays about deriving our name or identity from the Father. Paul then makes a petition that they would be strengthened by the Holy Spirit. And I love the way he says it. He just says it like such an old Pentecostal. You know, like he says, uh, according to the riches of glory, strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. I never hear anybody talk about the inner man. I love that phrase. And I want to talk about what the inner man is in a moment. But he actually prays, for them to be strengthened. This is where we see the fathering, like the spiritual fathering of Paul. He wants them to be strengthened. He's not uh, guilting them or shaming them. But what parent doesn't want to see their kids grow up and be strengthened physically, mentally, emotionally, right? I mean, I think every parent wants to see their kids strengthened in some way. So Paul has that in his heart, that they would be strengthened, and he wants them to be strengthened in the inner man by the Holy Spirit. So what is the inner man? Uh, Time to dust this off, I guess. Anyone recognize this? I pull this thing out all the time, all right? Blow the dust off it. This is uh, based on 1 Thessalonians 5.23, which says that we are sanctified in our body, our soul, and our spirit, okay? Uh, we teach, and I believe, and, and I'm not the only one that teaches this, in fact, many, many people teach this, uh, that human beings have a body, soul, and a spirit. It's called trichotomy, okay? That's the word for it. We all have a body, right? Anyone here not have a body? Just kind of floating around like a ghost? All right. We all have a body. Some have more than others. Your body is your organs, your bones, your blood. That's really not that hard to wrap your head around because it's material and it's physical, and we easily think of that. It's the immaterial stuff that we get a little confused by. So you'll see up here, I I separate the soul from the spirit or I make a distinction between the soul and the spirit. First, in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, it says body, soul, and spirit. Secondly, they're two totally different terms and concepts from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And third, Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates to the dividing of soul and spirit. So I see that there's a distinction between your soul and your spirit. Your soul is your mind, will, and emotions. Mind would refer to thoughts. Will would be your choices. Emotions, another way to say that would be your feelings. 
Okay? That's your soul. And then your spirit is your connection with God. It's where your spiritual gifts operate from. It's where your true identity takes place. Every human being has all three of these, but those who have not put their trust in Jesus, their spirit is dead, and they rot from the inside out. And it, it affects their thoughts, it affects their feelings, which affect their bodies. I mean, if you truly, if your spirit is truly separate from God, not in union with Christ, you're going to have a lot of insecure thoughts, right? A lot of anxiety, a lot of fear. And it's from the book of Psalms up to modern medical science, anxiety affects your body. Fear and anger affect your body, right? David wrote about it rotting his bones or feeling it in his bones. Well, that might have just been hypertension. I mean, the Bible and science agree your emotions impact your body, right? I don't know anything about this firsthand, but if you deal with anxiety, sometimes you like to overeat. And, uh, you know, so I eat all the fruits and vegetables that the animal that I'm eating ate. So, body, soul, and spirit. So, the inner man is the spirit. When Paul talks about the inner man, it's just another way of his saying your spirit. That he wants your spirit to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit. Okay? Um, 2 Corinthians 4.16 actually contrasts the outer man with the inner man. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says that your outer man is decaying. And I'm like, yes, it is. Your outer man is decaying, but he says your inner man is renewed day by day. So, Kendra and I were talking a couple days ago, like, how old are we, 50? My knees hurt, her knees hurt. It's like every time you go up the stairs, you like want to think about it. Like, do I really need what's up there? You know, like we're getting to that age. Um, or could I get that later? Or should I buy two? <laughs> Have one upstairs and one downstairs. You know, we all know the feeling of your outer man decaying, right? We feel that. You, 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 you know, you just get older and, and you, you, the aches and the pains. But while your outer man is decaying, your inner man is renewed day by day. Think about that. Daily renewal. Sustained revival. That's God's will for us. Not to get grumpier and less spiritual and less Christ-like as we get older, but actually be renewed day by day. In fact, some of the strength of our body comes from the internal daily renewal that we experience. All of a sudden, uh, our body is not a source of strength, and the joy of the Lord becomes our strength as we're renewed day by day. We begin to actually feel life from our connection with Jesus, and it affects our bodies as well. So we praise that they'd be strengthened by the Holy Spirit, uh, and that that would happen he says in first second corinthians 4 that that would happen day by day day by day the third thing that he mentions is that they would be indwelt and loved by jesus so starting in verse 17 so that christ may dwell in your hearts through faith so that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of christ which surpasses knowledge it's interesting 
that he says he wants them to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Jesus. He wants them to comprehend it, but then he goes on and says, it surpasses knowledge. He's like, which is his way of saying, I want you to understand it better, but you'll never fully understand it. You know, but, but I do want you to understand it, as we would say in Philly, more better. Okay? So he wants them to know the love of Christ, how high it is, how deep it is, how wide it is, how long it is. And he wants them to be rooted and grounded in love. You can tell what a person is rooted and grounded in by the fruit. Right? I mean, if they're rooted and grounded in anxiety, it comes out. If they're rooted and grounded in anger, it comes out. Fear, it comes out. Whatever you're rooted and grounded in is revealed by the type of fruit that you bear. He wants them to be rooted and grounded in love and bear the corresponding fruit to someone whose roots are firmly established in the love of Jesus. And then the fruit will be the result of that. He wants them to have an experiential knowledge of God's love. Not just to know about it, not just to know a couple memory verses about it, but to have first-hand knowledge of God's love that is experiential and to be rooted and grounded in love rather than shame or guilt. To be rooted and grounded means that you are no longer trying to attain it. You have already obtained it, so you no longer have to strive to attain it. He also prays that they would be indwelt by Jesus. Uh, Actually, I think he uses better language. He says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He wants them to have an awareness that Jesus dwells in their heart by faith. Now, this is like central to how we explain the gospel to people because we'll often use language like ask Jesus to live in your heart or invite Jesus into your heart, which is kind of a strange thing to say. And sometimes I, depending on how it's said, I'm like, I'm not sure that's totally accurate to the Bible. But it does say here that he wants them to know that Jesus dwells in their heart and i want to talk to you for a minute about what it means for jesus to dwell in our heart that word dwell means to settle down or to settle into and that is an important distinction Uh, for jesus to settle into your heart is a little bit different different than jesus simply inhabiting your heart here's what i mean by that when my wife and i were freshly married we were living in New York, and we had a one-bedroom apartment, a one-bedroom basement apartment, like in the basement. And it was $1,100 a month for a one-bedroom apartment. My mortgage is cheaper than that. And uh, because it was a rental, I don't know if you know those of you that have ever rented or maybe still rent, our landlord was like, hey, here's the keys. I've painted all the walls white. Don't paint the walls. Don't put down carpet. Don't hang things on the walls unless you use sticky tack. You cannot put holes in the wall. Like, there were some rules that came along with it. That, you know what I'm talking about? It's like, you, you can inhabit this apartment, but don't settle in. You know what I mean? So, we always wanted to, and finally, about five or six years ago, got to buy a house. And man, when we got into that house, whoever we bought it from loved burnt orange paint. The whole house just looked like the Sahara Desert. I mean, it was just like, 
Like, and, and this guy bought the very first flat screen TV ever and mounted it to the wall and left it for us. And it was like looking with like greasy glasses at the TV. It was just the, it was the original flat screen TV. And uh, when we bought the house, no one said to us, you can't paint the walls. You can't move some cabinets. You can't replace a countertop. And we began to settle in. And, which is actually the word that's used for Christ dwelling. We settled into that house. We did move some walls. We did paint some rooms. We did change the flooring, change the lighting. And over time, because we settled in, the house actually began to reflect us. Which is what life in Christ truly is. Jesus dwells or settles into you and he starts to make changes so that his character is actually reflected in you. So let me, thank you, Susan. I was hoping that someone would think that. So listen, I think some of us don't understand what Paul's praying because we're still letting Jesus rent. Jesus, you can inhabit me, but you know, don't put any holes in the wall. Don't change the color scheme. Just when you leave, it needs to be like you found it. So that means that we are not letting Jesus dwell in our hearts through faith. That we're letting him inhabit, but not settle into. The, the Christian life is truly letting Jesus settle into your heart and move the walls and paint and change the lighting and, and redo the bathroom to the point where now his character is reflected in your life. My wife, when we, when we you know, bought the house, she had in her an ache. I want a house that has the colors that I like. I want to pick the flooring. I want to pick the lighting. I want you, Jim, to redo the bathroom in your spare time. Still a little bitter about that. We've never really been close to divorce, but that was the closest. Um, so, uh, listen, that ache that my wife had in her heart for her character to be reflected in our home is the same type of ache Jesus has in his heart for his character to be reflected in you. He says, I want to change the way you think about these things. I want to change the way you handle finances. I want to change the way you interact with your family. I want to change your sexuality. I want to do this. I want to do that. I want my character to be displayed in these transformations. Does that make sense? And Paul wants them to grasp that. For Jesus to dwell or settle into their hearts. Just in summary before uh, we pray, this prayer is a bold, faith-filled prayer. This is not a wimpy prayer. This is not, oh, Jesus, please, if you would, give them a little strength to get through the day. This is a bold, apostolic, aggressive, faith-filled prayer. And really, this is prayer for an upgrade to connect with what our church is experiencing right now. This is for them to have an upgrade in their spiritual life. For them to go deeper with God in a way that actually lifts them up to a higher Christian experience. I know that we say deep lifts you up high. I get that that sounds funny, but 
That's actually what's happening, is for them to be rooted and grounded in love, deep, so that they experience life in the heavenlies with Jesus. And it's a prayer for an upgrade, and you know, I agree with this prayer for us. I want us as a church to experience this. So here's what we're going to do. I've asked a few of our leaders to be willing to pray for you. I'm going to ask uh, Dan McCurdy and Ruby Bermudez and Anna Wakeman and the Millers if they would come up. And uh, if any of these three things resonated with you, the idea of deriving your name or identity from the Father, the idea of being strengthened by the Holy Spirit in your inner man, or the idea of being indwelt and loved by Jesus, if any of those jumped out at you, these folks are going to be up here to pray with you for those specific things. We're not praying for, you know, your IRS audit or your car that's broken down today, okay? We're praying for these specific things. We'll do the other stuff later. Uh, so prayer team, come on up. Why don't you go to my left or my right? If you would like to be prayed for, you can come up. Uh, would you mind standing with me? I'm going to close us in prayer, and we've set aside a few minutes for you to respond. If you don't need to respond, you're, you're welcome to be dismissed. Don't forget to get your kids. They desperately want you to get them. <laughs> By they, I mean children's church teachers. Jesus, I ask that you would strengthen us, that you would help us to derive our name or identity from you, and that we would know that you desire to dwell, not just inhabit, but dwell in us, Jesus. I pray that as we uh, respond in prayer that you would give insight, prophetic insight to pray into specific things and to break chains and to break yokes. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Come on up and be prayed for if you'd like to. Otherwise, have a great week. Feel free to stick around and fellowship.